0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly!
0: Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE-certified master technicians. And if you need help,
2: we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today.
0: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto parts! Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark
3: Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 139. Today in on the show, we are joined by wildlife biologist Bronson Strickland, and we're talking whitetail research. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, I think, is going to be a very interesting episode. Because joining us here soon is a man by the name of Bronson Strickland. And Bronson is a wildlife biologist. And his his title is Associate Extension Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Management at Mississippi State University. And he's the co-director of Mississippi State's Deer Lab which, as I understand it, is one of the nation's premier deer-focused research departments. So, with all those impressive titles, Bronson is going to bring with him a fascinating array of insights into the biology and behavior of white-tailed deer. And from what I've read and different things I've seen from him in the past, he's just been involved in so many different interesting research projects when it comes to, to whitetails. What they do, why they do it. Um, and, and some interesting insights into what we can take from that as hunters. So so that's going to be the kind of the game plan today. Um, I I don't have any particular single agenda. I just want to dig into everything we possibly can from bronze and everything we can possibly learn. So, uh, Dan, are you up for some science?
4: Dude, I love science. I used to, like, take a balloon and rub it on my brother's head and then stick it to the wall. That, that's, <laughs> that's science. Okay, you know, yeah. Yeah. Static electricity, you know. True. So I'm a, I'm up for a good, I'm up for science. I love I love the details behind the, you know, the animal and what makes them tick. And you know, from a from a hunter standpoint, that should almost be as important of knowing how a whitetail operates should be more important than, you know, like strategy of how to intercept them. You know, I think I think they kind of go hand in hand, but
3: Yeah. it's it's the foundation, right? Yeah. Right. You need this foundation both to become a better hunter from a, you know, execution of a strategy, but then also I think it makes you a better hunter just maybe not a better quantifiably as like how effectively you can kill a deer, but it might make you a more well-rounded hunter in just understanding our quarry. Understanding these animals, having some insight, and uh, I don't know. I, I think it's just very interesting too. I mean, I, I'm right. I'm fascinated. If I didn't go into what I did, so well, I went into marketing and business and stuff, and then roundabout way got to here. But if I hadn't done that, I think I could have been a wildlife biologist or like a I don't know. I, I could just sit and watch animals all day and like just take note of what they're doing and why are they doing this. And I mean, I I don't think I'm too unique in that either. I mean, a lot of hunters, we just enjoy watching them. Right.
4: Right. Amen.
3: It's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting. Cause I, I have, there's so many things that we see. We, we talk all the time with different guests or just you and me, like we, as hunters make all these different assumptions or we identify these patterns or trends and we say, deer do this most of the time. So we're going to adjust our hunting strategy. You know, maybe it's because of like, you know, moon ideas or, barometric pressure things or we see these different things and people write about them in articles and we we go base a lot of what we do in October and November and December based on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd, I'd venture to guess that at least three quarters of those like recommendations usually aren't backed up by verifiable science. Um, right. So it's always nice to be able to go and, and talk to the people that really do have data and really do have, you know, quantifiable evidence to say whether or not some of these hunches that we have are actually true. So I'm hoping the Bronson can help us do that. Can he help verify or um, you know, dispel some of these different right. hunches that we as hunters have and, and I think he'll probably have a lot more above and beyond, but uh, that's what I'm particularly intrigued in.
4: I think what everybody should really pay attention to about, you know, the biology of a whitetail you know, how they smell, how they see, you know, how, you know, how their body is, you know, their senses hear, how they hear, and then maybe relate that to some of the products that you buy and say, okay, is this product making a, a, you know, just a BS claim or is there a a biological uh, reasoning why their, why their product works with whitetails as well? So, that's, that's interesting. So, that's 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 the kind of it, stuff I'm interested in, you know, like okay, so does an ozonics or really work or does these these sprays really work to a whitetail's nose? How sensitive is a whitetail's nose? What's the best camo pattern, right? You know, like are all these things can can you can you quantify whether or not um a company claims that their product does this. If you know, like actually no, because I'll tell you why the biology of a whitetail's eye is blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Yeah.
3: Yeah, It is always interesting to get a biological perspective on those things. So is a product aimed to, you know, actually make a difference based on known science of a whitetail or is it, is the unique value of this product simply that it's catchy to the hunter's eye, you know? Right. It's got something that's going to make a hunter say, "Ooh!" or "I want to wear that because it looks cool" or whatever. So, right. yeah, there's there's something to be said right. about trying to get some science behind it. So, I'm
4: pretty I'm pretty excited for this stuff because I grew up watching National Geographic's with my dad and brother, yeah. and uh, that was like our Sunday night tradition: pop some popcorn and watch uh, National Geographic's. And typically, it was about some kind of animals, right? And and they would always go into detail about you know, this fish has this extra appendage through, you know, through evolution because it does this or it's designed to do this specifically. So, you know, everything, poor genetics always fails on during, you know, through evolution. So the whitetail has got to the point it is today because it is, it's almost perfect in its environment. You know what I mean? Minus, minus hunters, like human beings, right?
3: Well, and and it's, and even above and beyond that, the, the unique adaptability of the white-tailed deer and that it can learn to live with humans and around humans. I mean, more so than most other large mammals in the world, let alone North America, Mm white-tails have adapted to that better than more, many, many other species. So, um, I mean, that's one of the, you know, and we talk about a lot, but in a world where the human footprint is massive and ever increasing, um, unfortunately, uh, much to our dismay, you know, we're pushing a lot of species to the brink or pushing them into increasingly small little pockets. Um, Fortunately for deer and deer hunters, deer are one of those species that can handle that increasing footprint and they can learn to live within it. Um, So that's, uh, they found a, a nice little, an evolutionary niche here where they, they fit in very well as kind of a, a mutually, what like, a, a, it's a, a symbiotic relationship, I think would be the biological term, right? If I'm remembering right. my science class, right? Where two species um, do better in conjunction. And I think in some cases, white tailed deer and humans almost have that type of relationship because, in a lot of ways, um, a lot of things that human development brings to some degree. Whether it's agriculture um, or logging different things, creating edge, creating you know fresh regrowth, a lot of things that we've done have actually helped whitetail populations, um, which is unique compared to a lot of the other animals that our development hasn't so it's it's one nice silver lining I think in the I don't know the story of humans' impact on wildlife in this country um, you know we've been able to find a good way to make it work with whitetails for the for the most part, right so right right. Yeah, dude, I'm
4: excited about this one. I love science is just cool, period. Biology and, you know, how things work, why they do what they do and and all that stuff.
3: Yeah. So I don't have anything too terribly exciting in my neck of the woods to share. Um, So do we want to jump right into our conversation with Bronson or do you have anything that's a note in the land of Dan?
4: No, man, I think we get, I think we're going to need every minute today with this guest because I have a whole sheet worth of questions. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Does the, does the acorn cruncher really
3: work? <laughs> Please let's lead with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka gear and then we'll give Bronson a call. All right, so last week in our Sitka story, we heard from Jessica DeLorenzo, one of the female hunters involved with the designing and testing of Sitka's new women's line. And today, I wanted Jess to tell us just a little bit more about what her and the team's work has led to as far as clothing customized for females.
1: Um, Well, it's a really serious process. And in the beginning stages, we met with um, fabric designers, product designers, and everybody at Sitka. And... We, uh, we really discussed how seams would align, how the layering process would work, and um, a lot of attention detail went into um, warmth and how female uh, female's bodies lose um, or keep in heat as opposed to males. So we did a lot of testing um, with uh, like body heat loss and we found that the, the females lost their body heat from completely different areas uh, at a different rate than men do. So we went through a lot of processes of uh, making sure that the prototypes had um, the ground field technology uh, underneath the thighs and the back uh, for a tree stand sitting. And on the big game side, I know they did a lot of testing with uh, making sure that the fabrics breathed well. And uh, they have the, um, what do they call it? the polygene odor control technology. So you weren't gathering any kind of scent or anything We were working really hard. So that was really important to us as well.
3: So can you elaborate then on, you kind of started on it, but could you elaborate on some of the other unique things that have ended up in the final women's line? You know, what were some of the final things that make this different and unique compared to the generic sick gear that was available, you know, in the past?
1: Um, well, the most obvious is fit. So we made sure that, Everything was tailored to women's bodies. the The way that the garments fit are much different than men's. There's a lot of uh, like stretching materials in it. There's a four-way stretch. There's gusseting in the jackets for the hip areas on women that isn't in the men's line. Um, the, the ground shield technology for warmth is much different in the women's fanatic system. It's not offered in the men's. Um, and they have pieces for to get our hair out of the way, which was a big deal for us. And another thing, all of the gloves and accessories were. We made sure that they were built on women's um, women's forms, so they didn't just um, take the men's items and size them smaller. So everything was particularly designed to a female body, which was very important to us.
3: So, if you would like to learn more about Sick Gear's women's line, or if you'd like to pre-order the new women's line, you can visit sitkagear.com slash womens. And now, back to the show and Bronson Strickland. Alright, with us now is Bronson Strickland. Thanks for joining us, Bronson.
2: Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, we, we just established off-air. I wish we were recording, but we just established off-air. Given your name and what how Dan feels about it, you are officially a badass. Um, so, just want to make sure everybody knows that.
2: <laughs> yep. yeah, badass. yeah, and Every. Everybody that knows me knows that too. <laughs> and, Dan, what was? And they're it? all laughing right now. <laughs> what
3: was it about his name, Dan, that just made you feel that way about him? I don't know. I, maybe your delivery, but,
4: but Bronson Strickland. You know, like he's an action star, or maybe a bodybuilder, or it's like, hey man, did you hear? Bronson Strickland just uh, broke the squat record.
3: I could see him being a UFC fighter. Is what a I I UFC understand. fighter? Yes. Yes. yeah yeah maybe okay. uh, yeah
2: coincidentally i i just retired from from that a few years ago <laughs> okay. and, and started to do this professor gig okay yeah. <laughs>
4: so yeah this this is just a cover-up right what should, what do you really do for a living
3: <laughs> so on that topic um, bronson what uh in all reality can you uh can you kick this off by just telling us a little bit about yourself how you got to be here and, and what you're doing today
2: Yeah, you bet. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of background about myself. Um, Like a lot of people, your listeners, I've always been uh, fascinated and enamored with the outdoors. Um, As soon as I could begin hunting, I I was fortunate enough to to be raised in an area where we had about 50 or 100 acres. And so it began with a BB gun and then a 410, and then a 22, and, and then evolved into deer hunting and uh, my my story is kind of funny. I remember vividly I was in eighth grade, and I was with my hunting buddy, and he said, hey, I've got this guy that's in my Boy Scouts group, and his father is a deer biologist. He's actually a professional deer biologist, and he works for the University of Georgia. And in eighth grade, when I heard that, I knew that my life was set in front of me, that I cannot possibly fathom another career that would interest me more than being a deer biologist so from, from that point forward uh, got through high school and uh, attended the University of Georgia and, and got an undergraduate degree in, in wildlife biology and after that I went to South Texas um, again because of my fascination with the deer management. the University of Georgia had a, a cooperative project there with Texas A& m Kingsville in, in South Texas and I got to work on one of these just dream come true uh, ranches, 60,000 acres, where uh, deer management was the priority and, and just learned so much about deer management, number one, but deer management in a completely different context in the southeast. And uh, after I graduated there, I came to Mississippi State, and I started working here with um, my colleague now uh, and, and co-director of the Deer Lab, Steve Damaris, and we started analyzing harvest data collected throughout Mississippi and started looking at uh, spatial trends and trends over time with how the deer herd is responding to to various regulations, Uh, for example, like antler regulations and things like that. Uh, And lucky for me, as soon as I graduated and about a year later, a faculty position opened up here in the department. That was in 2006, and I've been here ever since. And my job now is that I'm a professor but my my role is a little bit different uh my appointment is called extension and extension essentially means outreach so i do very little teaching in the classroom like my colleagues my teaching is in the field so i conduct a lot of seminars and workshops uh online training and and things like that that is essentially my my teaching appointment for the state of mississippi
3: sounds like a dream job as far as i can as well, far as i can it, it figure is for me. <laughs>
2: It is for me. It sure is. I'm very lucky.
3: That's incredible. Now, c- can you elaborate a little bit more on on what your department does, uh, you know, the, the deer lab? Um, what's the breadth of that? What's the scope and breadth of your work there?
2: Well, it, it was established over 20 years ago uh, by, by two fellas. You've probably heard of one guy named Harry Jacobson. He's a mm-hmm. longtime deer researcher and deer biologist from Mississippi State. Uh, and David Gwynn uh, was also here at the time, and they they began the deer lab and, and really started a focused effort on applied deer research. And and the biggest thing that they did, along with a lot of physiology studies and and age related studies with antlers and so forth, uh, was they started working with Mississippi hunters in association with our state wildlife agency, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks and started what is called the D-MAP program. D-MAP stands for the Deer Management Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. And and over the years, <clears throat> excuse me, how this relationship works is that in return for some consultation from a state agency biologist, hunters are required to collect uh, harvest data from, from all the deer that are killed on their property, both bucks and does, and we get biological data from does, you know, what, what was their age, what was their body weight, what was their lactation status. And from that, we can herd, uh, excuse me, we can gauge herd dynamics in terms of reproduction. And and then also from, from the bucks, we get, a, of course, age, body weight, and, and antler size. And so from that, from having that uh, data set literally statewide, and, and now we have over Uh, three-quarters of a million harvest records for Mississippi, is that we can look at at different trends and, and like I said earlier, different impacts regulations have on the demographics of the herd and in terms of antler size and and, and things like that. So that was really their brainchild. That is what those two guys got started. Um, Steve, of course, when, when Harry Jacobson retired, Steve came on board and his research and my research we really want everything to be grounded in application so we have to do nerdy things like other professors and we have to publish things in scholarly journals um but what we are really interested in is research that will ultimately have an impact for wildlife managers and for hunters um so we've done really applied stuff like we finished up research on uh Deer impact on soybean fields in Mississippi to, to soybean farmers. Um, we finished up, we were talking earlier, guys, about our our research. We just finished up on um, what we call multiple paternity or, or, or the reproductive uh, success of different bucks in the wild. What characteristics do successful bucks have that sire a great number of fawns or not? And and all those types of things, um, we worked with. Um, you guys have had Jeremy Flynn on the mm-hmm. podcast before. Yeah. Um, if you might remember him talking about the Buck Score technology. Yeah, we we worked with Jeremy on that. So again, just really applied things that um, we always hope culminates in uh, helping people manage deer. Either learning about it, learning about the biology. Why is this happening? And hopefully steering them in the the right direction to manage more efficiently.
3: I've got, I guess before I'm really interested in some of the research you've done and some of the findings, but I also am really curious about the the behind the scenes, like how something like this actually happens, like what goes into a research study around one of these things. Could you maybe pick an example, um, and maybe one of the one of the things you just mentioned there, where you could actually give us. A breakdown of the actual process to, you know, determine what's the thing we're gonna to try to look into. How do we collect the data? Collecting that data, analyzing that data. Um, can you walk us through an example of, of how a wildlife biologist in your position does that, and then is able to walk away with it from it with applicable and applicable data?
2: Yeah, you bet. So I'll I'll give you an example we are currently going through right now. So. Um, we are very fortunate in Mississippi to, to that our state wildlife agency, uh, Department of Wildlife, Fishers, and Parks, they are very engaged in deer research, and the the deer lab more or less serves as their research arm. And so questions that come to us from them um, just about have to be very applied in nature, because it's typically a question that hunters are giving to them. So their their staff of wildlife biologists are being presented with questions and and they want some answers. So we work with the staff of of MDWFMP and we literally will have a meeting. Hey, let's talk about this question. Let's talk about this problem. Is this an is this a question that we can answer with research? If so, how would we go about designing that that project and and then finally we have to develop of course we have to develop a budget for that. And we determine, hey, do we have an adequate amount of funding uh, to answer this question? And so, um, one of the questions most recently in Mississippi, this occurs in a lot of places. Um, but we wanted to simultaneously look at what impact our acorn crops. So, like this year, there were a lot of deer sightings were down uh, in some areas, harvests were down, um, and people want to know what's going on. Is it disease? Uh, We're not seeing as many deer, and it may simply be that we had a very, very good acorn crop. Simultaneously, we had a big-time drought in the southeast, and so when a lot of people in November and early December were used to seeing deer on food plots, there was nothing there. You know, there was nothing growing because we had the drought, and so deer sightings were down. Um, the, the The other interest is, like in a lot of places, what is hunting pressure? having on deer and specifically on bucks so what we decided to do was we were going to put gps collars on about 50 mature bucks and so we again worked with our state wildlife biologists to find a number of landowners so we've got about a 30,000 acre area where all the landowners are very cooperative the hunting clubs are very cooperative and they helped us with uh catching deer trapping these bucks and putting gps collars on them and Beginning uh, this late summer and fall, we're going to be taking uh, a location from, from all these bucks about every two to three hours, all through the hunting season. And so we're going to see how they respond to different weather events. We're also going to see how the bucks are going to respond to hunting pressure. So that was had to be a big buy-in from the club, is it's not just we're going to monitor the deer, we want to mon- monitor the hunters. So we want to know where this hunter went, the route that they took to their stand, the sand they hunted on and for how long and how they left. And so it's going to get really complicated, but we're going to overlay all that material, the hunting pressure as well as the buck movements, as well as we're going to be mapping out areas where we have hardwoods and oak trees, uh, gauge what the mast crop is, and see if we see more or less movement based on the acorn crops. And just really the ultimate goal is try to provide Uh, deer managers and deer hunters with answers you know try to help explain what they are seeing and um and and use you know science to answer those questions
3: so how do you in this type of example you know and and i am no scientist i am no analyst so i am i'm coming from a very amateur standpoint but as i as i understand these types of things and as i try to understand these types of things right when you're trying to establish a uh you know as if relationship you know, a, because of a relationship, you're trying to, you have to isolate a variable, right? You have to say, okay, here's a control. Let's measure what's happening in the control. We have to measure then whatever that variable is we're changing. And then the impact, how do you do that in a situation like this where it sounds like you're measuring different, many different variables. What, Cause we're talking about hunting pressure as a variable. As I understand, we're talking about possibly weather as a variable. We're talking about food sources as a variable. I mean, how can you, measure the impact of any one of those things when they all may have an interdependent reaction or um, you know relationship within into each other.
2: That is very, very insightful. That is a very good question and that is a, um, uh, that is part of every analysis is you have to figure out and we have statistical tests for this, but what you just described there is are your data independent? or are they linked or are they associated? So uh, when one variable goes up, another variable automatically goes down. And because those two variables are correlated, it's hard to distinguish causation. Is it because this one went up or the other variable went down? But we have statistical techniques. Uh, One example is called analysis of variance. And when you plug in a lot of variables to movement, so it might be uh, hunting pressure, some metric of hunting pressure, it might be acorn abundance, it might be percentage of area in food plots, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you can see which of those variables are acting independently or are acting in concert. And then, you know, you kind of account for it once you know which is the case. And then you you with these statistical models, you can partition the variation. So what proportion of the deer movements are responsible for, or excuse me, the deer are responding based on acorns. You know, 30% of the movements we can say is is acorn crop. Uh, hunting pressure, well, based on our model, we can say that 50% of the variation that we see in movements are based on hunting pressure. So it's really, it's almost like a process of elimination. So you might start out with six or eight or 10 different very plausible biologically reasonable variables and then just kind of one by one with with the weight of evidence from your data you either have support for some or you eliminate others
3: now are you in this particular instance are you going into this with a set of hypotheses do you have a hypothesis that you're trying to prove false or true or are you yeah, I mean, I guess as I understand the scientific method, right, that's how it works. Or are you going into this with a blank canvas and saying, what are we going to find out?
2: Well, it'll be, it'll be a little bit of both. So um, we can just about guarantee from the beginning, is hunting pressure going to impact deer movements in some way? That's going to be true or false. And more than likely, that's going to be true. But we also want to then measure the effect so um at what point um we may have a little bit of hunting intensity we have no measurable change in deer movements or we may have this greater um hunter intensity may then impact deer movements and we did a study like this previously in another location the de- <clears throat> excuse me the design was different different setup but but what we found was that Uh, And this is kind of bad news, but it only, in this study, it only took about three to four days for the deer to adapt. Yeah. So we know going in, we have some preliminary data, that after three or four days of hunters being in the woods and tracks and human scent and sounds kind of saturating the woods, uh, the deer learned, and they responded in in about three to four days. Um, And they changed their movement patterns. And it wasn't so much that they changed the total distance that they moved in a day. So let's just for easy numbers here, let's say a deer moved a mile every day. Um, After hunting pressure, they still moved a mile when you added up dot to dot or point to point, but they did it in a more complex manner. So they still moved a mile, but they moved a mile in a much smaller area, which was most likely they were staying to cover. They weren't exposing themselves as often
3: that makes sense did you did you um in this particular instance did you look into you know the the um oh gosh i don't know how the right way to articulate is but did actual core ranges change i mean you always hear this when hunters we talk about you put pressure on deer and if you if you put too much pressure they're gonna get out of dodge and i've always wondered some people say yeah they'll completely relocate if you're in there too much or no they'll do, as you just mentioned there, they will just be in cover more or they'll be more likely to move at dark, but they're not necessarily going to be gone. Were you able to see anything like that? To what degree that change happened? Is it distance? Is it just timing? Anything like that?
2: Yeah, with our study, now, it's not to say that in some instance they might completely get out of dodge, um, but at that study with with those bucks they pretty much stayed within their their home range in their core area. They just moved less or they just moved more, um, more complex pattern. So we didn't have any just outright shifts of a deer getting up and moving, moving out. They just didn't move as often. Yeah.
3: Interesting. So on the, this is, we're about to just go crazy rapid fire and you Bronson, because there's so many questions related to this that I'm intrigued um, by, but On this topic of of deer movement, we've talked about this a ton on the podcast with different guests. All the different variables that may or may not influence deer movement. Maybe that's the amount of deer movement. Maybe that's the amount of daylight movement. Maybe that's just how early in the day they move. Different things like that. So we talk about Mm -hmm. what different factors could potentially influence deer movement in a way that benefits hunters. Um, There's so many theories. There's so many different hunches. There's so many different things that I think Dan and I and a lot of our listeners have tried putting into place to, you know, slant things a little bit in our favor. Um, as I understand it, you have participated and have been part of some research that has tried to measure some of this. A is that is that correct? And B, what can you tell us based on the research you've done?
2: Yeah, that that that's correct. Um, we did two research projects uh, related to this. Um, the first was involved. Uh, again, using uh, GPS collars, so we were looking at the, the movements of deer, but both does and bucks, and over uh, a couple seasons, and we did not find any evidence whatsoever um, that the moon, for example, changed their activity patterns. We didn't see any increases in the movement rates. We didn't see any changes uh, temporally throughout throughout the day when they were moving more moving less and i know i've we get a a lot of scientists we get a lot of um, negative feedback for that and um because a lot of people and and i and i really do i I trust some people there's some people i really do trust with their camera data they see some they see some trends and and i'm not denying that uh in that area at that time that trend may well have occurred but um over the course of you know a a number of bucks and those and over uh you know, a two-year study, um, we just did not see any reliable impact uh, of the moon, of moon phase. Um, we did see some changes in uh, when we would have temperature changes. So when we would get, you know, the front would be coming in, uh, we might see some increased movements. But but again, it, it wasn't that dramatic. It was always subtle. Um the the other study we did was. I have to a quick
4: question before you get into it. When when you say an in increase in movement, do you mean total area covered, or do you mean like observed movement from a tree stand or a trail yeah. camera during daylight?
2: Yeah, but very very good point. So what we typically do is, is we will break the deer's day up into periods. So we, we might break the day up from uh, 30 minutes before sunrise or an hour before sunrise till two hours after, uh, from from 9 a.m. to 12, from 12 to 3, from 3 to you know dark. We, we break the day up, and then for every single deer and every single day, we calculate you know what their movement rate was, and the rate could be a lot of different ways. It could be total distance moved, uh, the average distance in between points, but. You know, we try to totally characterize, was that deer moving more than it normally does? And then we retrospectively, we go back and we look at those weather events and we try to fit, uh, okay, we had a big change in the moon here or we had a big change in temperature. We had a big difference in rain. And and we just see if any of those environmental variables are responsible for any changes in, in the deer movement patterns. That's how that's how we do it.
4: So here's and a, then so then the outcome of that particular uh event was it it wasn't inconclusive. It was that those weather may increase a small amount, but moon you have found no evidence to support that the moon increases movement.
2: We did not. In okay. in two different studies we did not. Um so there, there's kind of two things about the moon. You know, there's the, the moon and the position of it, and is it affecting just in general uh, movement rates, more movement rates in the day versus nighttime, et cetera. Uh, the other is, is the moon affecting the breeding season? Is the moon affecting the rut? And so with this one, we just, you know, we're just totally using does here. And we we did it from our pen, from our captive facility, no, we know when these does are being bred. We know when these does are having their fawns. So uh, we can relate, you know, their, their patterns, the conception patterns. Um, and then in the wild, we have a data set through the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks called our springtime herd health evaluations where um, does are killed and, and the, the, the does are harvested for scientific purposes where we can extract the fetus, and based on the size of the fetus, we know when that dough was bred. We know when conception happened, the date. And so through both of those sources of data, we went back for about a decade, and we looked at, okay, the moon was this this year, or the moon was that next year, the moon was this here, and it was never correlated. There was never, you never saw Changes in conception dates for a population track in any way changes in the moon. there just was, there was never a relationship.
3: did you guys, did so, you guys ever look into what might influence um, the breeding date specifically in the south? I'm just curious, given the fact that a lot of us you know where you're, you're down in Mississippi, you hear so much about the wonky timing of the rut down in that part of the country. Were, were you able, ever able to look into that?
2: Well, what we have found the most support for, um, that there's a lot, uh, Mark, as you mentioned earlier, that you know there's a lot of interacting variables that, that can move breeding season forward or back a little bit. But typically what we find the strongest evidence for is um, in the southeast, it is so varied. So you'll have, even in Mississippi, you'll have the rut occurring in some places the beginning of December all the way to the middle of February. Where I grew up in Georgia, latitudinally exactly the same place where I'm at now, uh, but it was around Thanksgiving a whole month earlier. So it is usually related to um, the stocking source. So it's the genetic heritage. So as you might know, all throughout the southeast, uh, when deer were restocked in the 50s and 60s, um, for example, in Mississippi, we had deer from Mexico, deer from Texas. We had deer from Wisconsin, deer from Ohio, deer from North Carolina. And when we find these pockets of uh, the breeding season is a month before or a month after, you know, when we see these big changes, it usually can be traced back to what was the stocking source for that area. Wow. So that that is inherited by the mother. A mother will... Pass that along uh, to the female fawn. She will inherit uh, the breeding date from her mother. So that is, that usually sets the stage, the window, so to speak, and then environment can push it and pull it a little bit. and And the biggest thing with environment is is uh, herd condition. And so if you've got a really either the you know environmental conditions are poor, food conditions are poor, or you just have a really really dense deer herd. There's a lot of evidence to say that um, does may come into estrus on average a little bit later. But, but the biggest thing that we've seen over time is, is just adult sex ratio. When, when you have a population where the rut is protracted over six weeks, two months, that's usually, we don't even see that now much anymore, but usually back in, in you know 20 years ago, that was because you had such a skewed adult sex ratio where too many does were coming into heat simultaneously that there weren't enough adult bucks in the population to breed them. And so they would go back, back into heat 28 days later. And so you end up with this three-month-long rut, um, and it was just simply a, a product of sex ratio.
3: Hmm. And that's not just specifically in the southeast. That was something that could be the case anywhere in the country with that type of sex ratio, correct?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely
3: so can you can you um and i'm not sure if you've looked into this but can you speak to then what the implications are of other management changes that as hunters we might make so if we were to you know better try to control the doe population so we have a closer sex ratio or influence the age structure have you been able to see how changes like that or any others you've looked into then change behavior or uh, Rutting timing or anything else that we as hunters would be interested in.
2: Um, the biggest influence would would of course be managing your density relative to food. So it's never for for any for, for reproduction for producing uh, fawns, specifically buck fawns, for producing uh, you know Boone and Crockett bucks or Pope and Youngs. If you have too many deer relative to the food supply, you're never going to win you're right you're you're always behind um but but the other part of that as well is is of course going to be your sex ratio so you would never want especially mark up in your neck of the woods you you never want a doe breeding one month later than she had evolved to optimally breed in your environment. Mm-hmm. So getting getting fawns on the ground as early as possible where you're from is critically important for them to have enough body mass to survive the winter. And so if you have a skewed sex ratio and your doe is coming in on average you know, a month later, now you, you have put that fawn at a disadvantage, and, and survival rates on average are going to be lower. But mainly, Mark, that, that's primarily it. Keeping the herd numbers, in, and if you're keeping the herd numbers in, in check – then your sex ratio is probably going to be in check as well.
3: Okay. So speaking of then this topic of herd health and things like that, you know, the the other factors that I think are generally talked about would be then genetics and available nutrition when it comes to, you know, the uh, the results you'll get from a deer herd. Can you talk about that um, what you've seen what the influence those different things have? What does How does genetics influence things? How does nutrition influence things? Um, How does any other changes we might have? Maybe, I know antler growth is something you've looked into, and I think there's been a lot of studies around measuring the impact of those couple factors on antler growth, but um, can you speak to some of those things?
2: Yeah, you bet, you bet. Um, One point i like to emphasize is um, genetics are very important for individuals, and nutrition is very important for a population. So those work in concert. Um, so when you look at, um, and some of this is it could be on our, our website, Mark, on uh, msudeerlab dot com. You might see some of these figures. Mm-hmm. but you need to think about um, a buck herd, specifically an age class, is a bell-shaped curve, meaning that you're going to have most of most of the bucks in your area are gonna have an average antler size. And there's gonna be very few of them that are way below average, and there's gonna be very few of them that are way above average, meaning like Boone and Crockett's. And so in in Mississippi, even when you get bucks to maturity, you're only gonna have about 15% of your mature bucks are gonna be what most hunters would consider a trophy. Now that's genetics. That is the genetics of individuals. It doesn't matter if they had all the food they could possibly eat. If, if a particular buck is programmed to be a 120-class 8-pointer, then it's going to grow to be a 120-class 8-pointer, whether it had you know average food or way above average food. So that is how genetics affects individuals. How nutrition affects the population is that you move the average up or down based on nutrition. So in Mississippi statewide, <clears throat> and it varies from region to region, but statewide, the average mature buck is going to score about 125. And and when I say mature, I'm talking five and a half or greater. It's going to score about 125. Now when you go to a more fertile region, which would be our farm region, which is you know going to be a characteristic or, or similar to the Midwest, it's it's a region that is uh, loaded with soybeans and corn now you have moved that average positively to 135 or 136 but you're still going to have within that good region really small bucks average bucks and really good bucks so uh, i hope that makes sense you're you're never going to be able to manage for genetics in a free-ranging herd genetics are there they're more they are more or less fixed if it's a free-ranging herd but the one thing you can do to move the herd to the right or to improve it is, is genetics. Now, let me fill you in on a, a study. This was a 10-year study that we did with our uh, state wildlife agency. Um, so what I described was was going on in Mississippi. So all throughout the, the nine, 80s and 90s and, and early 2000s, you got a lot of hunters that see bucks that are killed from our ag region going, my gosh, they are just killing monster bucks over there. And they are killing really, really, you know, I mean, it's very much like a, a Midwestern landscape. Lots of food. And really big bucks are harvested in Mississippi there. And then you have the opposite end of the continuum. You have part of our state that is mainly um, devoted to forestry. Uh pine production, pine forest production. And and the pine trees are not the bad guy. There's nothing wrong with the pine forest. But as a result of the way those forests are managed, you've got a landscape that's full of trees and you have a landscape where the trees are capturing all of the sunlight. And by default, you're not producing much food on the forest floor. So you've got a region that doesn't produce much deer food and then you've got a, re- a region that produces more food than the deer can eat. Well, but hunters look at that, and, and they're from the region of the state, the southeastern region on our coast, and they say, we want to we want to be able to kill some of those big bucks in our region like they do over in the ag region, which is what we call the delta, the delta region. And it, it started to get a lot of... Um, questioning not really an outcry but a lot of questions about why can't we just move some of those deer from the delta region why can't why can't you biologists just capture some of those and turn them loose down here in the southern part of the state so we can have big deer like they have over there and now the the biologist my response and you know my colleague's response initially was well, heck, if you take a big old uh, buck that's destined to be a 150 class in, in the ag region and turn him loose in a region that has no food, he's probably going to get really small. You know, he's not going to be able to fulfill his genetic potential because he doesn't have any food. But we decided to conduct the experiment anyway. Huh. And I, I'm sorry, this this is a bit long-winded here, but I, I no. promise in the end it'll be, it'll be worth it. I'll, I'm interested. So here's what we did. So we went out and captured... Uh, between 30 and 40 does, pregnant does, from three regions, the region of high food, a region of medium food, and, and then the region of low food supply. Captured pregnant does, brought them back to our deer research facility, and let them have their fawns. And then once the doe had their fawn, and once the doe weaned the fawn, the doe now, she's out of the study, completely cut out of the study, And now every one of those fawns, both bucks and does, every one of those fawns is raised on the exact same diet, exact same nutrition. Now what was surprising was that at three years of age, when we started measuring from these different regions, and and remember, they were all kept separate. The deer from the good region were in a separate pen, and the medium region, the low region, they were all kept separate. And at three years of age, we didn't see any difference and we're scratching our head how can it be that this buck fawn that after weaning for for three years ate the exact same diet as the fawns from the good region and there's still a disparity of 20 to 30 inches of boone and crockett score and 20 to 30 pounds of body weight how can that be
4: so you're saying it was the same. They all grew up, and they were had the same weight, and they had
3: the same antler size.
2: They, they had the same weight and antler size of where they came from.
3: Oh, but, okay. not, but not across. So, so within your facility, though, you had they were the bucks that came from the great nutrition spot, they still were bigger. The bucks that came from a lower yeah. nutrition spot, they still were smaller, even though they were raised on the same amount of food.
2: Exactly. Well, that's so bizarre. So little deer— yeah, the, the the little guys remained little, even though they ate the exact same food as, as the the bucks from our ag region did. But here's where the magic happened. So we're scratching our heads and wow, and and you know we're sitting here thinking, golly, how, maybe there is some type of you know genetic effect. And now now you know we're like, maybe it's because they're restocking. Maybe maybe you know maybe just coincidentally some of these areas. Uh, in the southern part of the state, we were, were stocked with the deer that, you know, just have average smaller antler size. Well, the keep in mind here. So that first generation of fawns, we measured the bucks, but we also kept the does around. So now those does were also those same doe fawns that were born with the buck fawns. They were raised on good nutrition, and then they were bred. And then we looked at the second generation And so the second generation was where the magic happened. And so now those little deer from the southern part of the state, the second generation of three-and-a-half-year-old bucks, there was over a 30-pound difference in body weight Hmm. and 20-inch difference in Boone and Crockett score. So they completely compensated and caught up, but it just took two generations So here's what's really, really most important, is it's the mother. And so one of our little sound bites, it's not what that buck ate throughout his life. It's what his mother ate throughout her life that's what's important. And so a mother being nutritionally stressed, even when she has that fawn, and even when the fawn is weaned, um, and there's a term for this, it's called epigenetics, but basically It is a process where certain genes do not get expressed. That's a real simple way of saying it. But even though those bucks may have had genes to be 140-class deer, because that mother went through nutritional stress, it's almost like the body was saying times aren't good enough yet. There's still a nutrition problem. You don't want to grow to be 30 pounds bigger than average because you're not going to have the food to support your body. So they stayed small. But when those doe fawns were raised up until three years of age on really, really good nutrition, those switches were flipped. It was now genetically their offspring, their buck offspring, could now truly express their genetic potential. So the first year of the study, the, the first generation, we saw no difference. Big deer stayed big, or deer from the big region stayed big, Deer from the little region stayed small. So, and in the second region, all the way across the board, they were the same. The little deer caught up with the big deer. But it took a generation of mom. So mom was the most important part of this.
3: So given that reality, then, that mom's the most important, what's the action item for hunters or managers who want to better allow these deer to express those genes now that we know it's the female that's that's most important on that side of things, is it that she just needs optimal nutrition at the point of weaning the fawns, or right when she gives birth, or what's what's the takeaway here for us from an action standpoint?
2: It, 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 everything you said, really. Um, it, it's a mother being in ra- raised in an environment that is not food-limited, or not being nutritionally stressed. And so... What we see with my colleagues that that are in Texas that do, of course, a lot more supplementally feeding uh, than we do in Mississippi, but they typically always... Now, the scientifically-minded ones that are really measuring, they are really measuring how much food are we putting out and and am I getting a return on my investment? The the first return on investment they ever see is at least five years away. And most of them will say, you're going to need a good decade of really up and... Uh, the nutrition before you're really going to start to see big impacts. and And that is simply because you need uh, that mother, that mother needs to be raised on good nutrition. And then when she's starting to be a really good fawn producing age, three years of age, four years of age, five years of age, you know she's lived her life with with all the food she can eat or high quality foods always available. And that's when you start seeing the magic happen. And that's when you see that the, their buck offspring start growing above average. Interesting. So it's not so a fixed.
4: So does that change year to year? So same doe, one year, has awesome food. She's healthy. She She is bred. That buck is going to come out. And now let's compare that buck that is born, let's say, this year, right? Over this winter – terrible winter, right? The buck or uh, the, while the, the buck is in utero, the mom has poor nutrition. It's sending signals genetically to this buck saying, Hey, we may not have enough food, so you don't need big antlers. So conditions like nutrition, if you compare those two bucks with each other, and 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 were to compare them one year and then compare them the next year are you seeing this same trend where he's going to have smaller antlers even though let's say they had the same mom and the same dad
2: yes that that will happen not to the degree that we saw with this experiment but we've seen that with our our harvest data with our wild data wild deer free-ranging deer is that um we can explain anywhere from five to ten percent of the body size and the antler size of bucks at two years of age based on the experience uh of the weather or the environmental severity when those bucks were in utero so yes so
4: that is the trigger that's the trigger. Yeah. Is the the bu- the the deer while in utero, the mother is sending sending signals to that fetus, telling it we're having we have a good life or we're going we're
2: struggling. I I certainly believe so. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I wish I was more of a physiologist. and I could tell you more about the pathways by which that happens, but uh, that's certainly what it appears to me to be. Yes. That, okay. that it's critical all the way from, um, from the time of conception uh, to while that fetus is in utero, and then, and then don't forget as well, uh, even after birth, if environmental conditions are really bad, that affects a dose lactation. And so during those early growth periods, those first couple months or weeks of life, are they getting quality milk or not? So all that can, be, can have lingering effects a year or two years later. yeah.
3: So uh, related to this, but a little bit more to what you're talking about a second ago, I just want to make sure to very that we clearly articulate um, what I think you mentioned earlier, and that is that gen- that we as hunters—correct me if I'm wrong—but we as hunters really cannot influence the genetics of a population. So you know, five, ten, fifteen years ago, you watch hunting TV shows, even more recently still really you watch a hunting tv show and everyone's talking well we got to kill call buck because we want to improve the antlers in this area we're going to kill this little eight pointer, management buck all the management is that all a bunch of bs or is there any is there anything really there or is that just old school that doesn't really work
2: it's old school it doesn't really work but here's the caveat um if it is a free-ranging deer herd Now, all you guys know that what has been done uh, by deer breeders in in a confined environment. So when you can literally pick out this When I have a doe's pedigree, and I know her buck offspring, and then I can match that doe with this buck, and I know what his antler size is, um, when you can manipulate mating like that, then yes... You can steer genetics, um, you know, to a a freakish size. And that's like deer breeders, of course, that, um, you know, when you you produce a 200 or 300 class two-year-old deer, you know, you've manipulated genetics. But but that is the difference. That is only, only applicable in a fence. And even within a fence, it's not like it's a free-ranging fence. So it's not like, hey, we've got 10,000 acres under high fence. That is when you are manipulating who is breeding who. When you have a free-ranging environment, you, um, it is remarkably inefficient, so inefficient that it is not even practical. And, and here's the reasons why. So if I want to shoot this spike buck, well, first of all, we know that um, I'll speak, I won't speak for Michigan, but I'll, I'll speak for the southeast. Now, it's usually due to birth date. They're usually just born a little bit later. It's usually a temporary environmental condition is why they, why they have a spike. So we know good and well that most yearling spikes are going to grow into, you know, an average-sized mature buck if they're allowed to live. Um, but what we cannot do, so if I'm going to shoot this buck, hey, uh, he's four. I think he's four years of age and he only has six points, he is definitely lower quality. I'm going to remove him out of the herd for genetic purposes. Well, I, I, I can take him out, and, and we'll get back to this. There are some good reasons to take bucks like that out, but it's not for genetics. But the reservoir of genetics, 50% of the genetics that goes into a buck is from the mother. We, we have no way to select if a doe is going to produce big antlered offspring or small antlered offspring. So that in and of itself, 50% of the equation, you, you you can affect. And the other part about this is, even if you could, you have the process of dispersal. So if on my 1,000 acres or 2,000 acres or 500 acres, I'm doing all this, quote, you know, culling to improve genetics, well, the does that do get bred and they have their buck fawn, you know, 70 to 80% of them are going to disperse off of my property. So there's, all, there's always a hole in the bucket genetics was yeah. Genetics are always going out, and genetics are always coming in because your neighbor's yearling bucks are dispersing onto your property. So when we do simulations, and we got with livestock, uh, cattle people, to run because, you know, they can control this type of stuff. And, it, you know, it's, it's a very reliable system for them because they can control who breeds who. When we, when we met with livestock geneticists and, and their modelers for, hey, let, let's replicate this system for deer. And we use all sorts of scenarios. We're going to harvest, you know, the, these cull bucks, and we're going to harvest it a super, super, because it has to be intense. If you're going to do anything, you know, it's got to be really intense. And what we found after running our simulation model for 20 years of super intense selective harvest or culling, we didn't change antler size, but maybe an inch or two. Uh, not even noticeable
4: Wow, so basically, and what so we're getting at basically what we're getting at is if you have a TV show, please stop saying I'm going to shoot this management buck or this call buck because you sound like <laughs> an idiot,
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and don't follow it up with um, I'm going to get this out of the gene pool, yeah. right,
4: because you can't. Yeah. period
2: you can't those genes are embedded (laughs) within that population's gene pool and they're just being expressed by different individuals from time to time now is there such a thing people have different names they want to use you can call it a management buck you can you know whatever Um, i don't like you know not coal buck but now, now there are very strategic reasons to remove some bucks from the population but it's not from a genetic standpoint, it's from a food conservation standpoint. So if I'm working with a property or my property, I'm working with hunters, and we are managing for, you know, mature bucks, older age class bucks. And so we're trying to harvest, you know, five-year-old bucks, six-year-old bucks, etc. And out walks on my food plot. Here out walks this 230, 240-pound five-year-old that scores 95 now, again, that's rare. So remember our bell-shaped curve. You know, there's, there's very few really, really big bucks with extremely large antlers. There's very few that, that are five years old with really small antlers, but they're out there. So if I choose to harvest that buck, I'm not doing anything to improve genetics. But what I did do is save two to three tons of deer forage on my property.
3: Now, would the, do you? Follow, would the, I, I do follow you. Now, let me ask you this though. I would assume that your impact would be much greater if you're simply trying to remove pressure on food by harvesting a doe, or two does, or whatever it might be, compared to that one buck, though, right? So, I mean, yes, you can take that buck, and you can, um, you can justify it by means of reducing competition for food, so that the bucks that do have better chances of um, you know, having the right genetics, have a better chance of being able to reach that potential because of available food, you could achieve that just as well or better by harvesting a doe or doe harvesting in general, correct?
2: <clears throat> that, that would be one strategy. So one strategy might mean I'm going to keep my deer density very, very low. And so I'm going to have just an adequate number of does, I'm going to have an adequate number of fawn recruitment, and I'm going to keep the deer population really really low, um, and that works that is very successful. that type of approach will always be successful, but another successful approach um, is you got to think about what your currency is. your currency for producing uh, as many trophy bucks as possible is buck fawns i need I want to have. And I'm not, guys, I'm not in any way saying you need to have your, your be overpopulated. I'm not saying that at all but, because there's a fine balance here. But there's also merit for I want to carry as many does as I can without sacrificing food quality so that I can be pumping out every year buck fawns and recruiting within, within my population. I want to be producing as many bucks as possible. And then when I start seeing at three years of age or at four years of age, if I start seeing that hey this buck is really not going to turn out to be a trophy, um, I'm just harvesting it. I'm just having fun. I'm harvesting it with my bow or with my gun or my guest or my friends or whatever. You know, so uh, th- there is a, there is a way that you can still manage for mature trophy bucks and still harvest a lot of bucks along the way. You just got to make sure which ones to pass and which ones to harvest.
4: So basically, what you're saying is that big mature buck with a small antler is occupying a spot on your farm. You take him out, and what that does it lets the next up and comer give them the opportunity to showcase what they're going to be. And if they don't, if they don't uh, produce, you take them out. And it's basically cycling through bucks until you find one that is genetically to your liking and you'll be able to, okay, well, he's going to make the pass this year and I'm going to let him go to four. I'm going to let him go to five. I'm going to let him go to six and uh, I'm going to let him reach his full potential because he could be that, you know, that, that trophy buck.
2: That, that, that's exactly right.
4: Um,
2: So we work with properties all the time that, that do precisely that. And so their their goal is to maximize, you know, how do I maximize trophy bucks on my property? Well, one one way to do that is I need to produce a lot of bucks, but I also don't need to carry every one of those bucks till he's six and a half years of age. By three or four years of age, I can tell is he going to be a contender, you know, is he a keeper? And and ones that aren't keepers, this is where you get to hunt. You get to have fun. You still get to harvest a lot of bucks when you're managing for trophies. Now, let me qualify one thing, too. You can be in some environments where, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of my colleagues in South Texas, you know, we take fawn recruitment here sometimes for granted. Um, and unless you have a you know a real predator problem, um, you're going to have fawn recruitment. You're going to be producing bucks. Now, if you're in an environment that's really severe, whether it be really severe in terms of arid, or if you're in the uh, UP of Michigan, some of those severe environments, you know, recruitment's not guaranteed. And and so, you know, you have to be a lot more conservative about, um, you know, what what deer you harvest. At at the same time, if, if you're in some of those environments, you gotta be real conservative about your doe harvest. Even though I may have a lot of adult does, If my recruitment rate, like can happen a lot, is only 20%, it's very difficult to accumulate a lot of bucks over the years. So you always want to keep what we call the fawn factory. You always want to keep the fawn factory, uh, you know, going as strong as it possibly can.
3: So we've talked a lot about antlers and managing for maybe bigger antlers or healthier deer or trophy deer. And, and that's not, not everyone's cup of tea. Not everyone's interested in necessarily that, um, which, is, which is perfectly fine. There's a whole lot of different flavors and types of deer hunting we all like. Um, but I'm curious, when it comes to antlers, you alluded to us earlier before we talked on air here that, uh, that you could speak a little bit to the, to the evolutionary and ecological purpose of antlers from a, from a deer perspective. Can you, can you talk about that?
2: yeah yeah I'd be happy to This is one of the topics near and dear to my heart is um um so w- when I'm giving presentations, you know sometimes to hunters, sometimes to the general public i I always like to to ask the question um and and it can just be a curiosity for people but I say why why do bucks have antlers? What's the purpose of it? and you'll typically get some people that the well to to run off predators, I guess like no that's really not it um well gosh why why do bucks have antlers i'm like yeah there's got to be a really important purpose for this this structure is very physiologically costly it is so costly that during the antler growing season for a buck they 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 go through osteoporosis they they can't even garner enough phosphorus and calcium from their diet that they have to mobilize minerals you know from their bones to, to complete antler growth, so it's like, you know, mo- Mother Nature must think these things are pretty darn important for them to go through that. And and the answer is, um, bucks have antlers to fight off other bucks. <laughs> as as simple as that. <laughs> li- like to think of yes, this to, to chase a wolf off or something like that. But but antlers serve as both two two things. We call them, and these are the the biological, sexy terms. They're a signal and they're a weapon. So. Antlers serve as a signal, first and foremost, to other males. So evolutionarily, it is better for me to show off my age and my um, dominance, and my dominance from a standpoint. If if I have a really big body, that means I was able to eat a lot of food, I had access to food, um, I was able to grow large antlers, then by them having that signal, that tells younger bucks or subordinate bucks, I don't want to mess with him. I'm not going to jeopardize getting my eye put out or getting uh, gored in the lung or anything like that in a fight. So it's a signal. So it reduces a lot of the fights. Um, and then secondly, yes, it is a weapon. So it is a – what I like to say, it is it is a structure for leverage. Now, so the no. Go
3: ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you continue with what you're saying there.
2: Well, <clears throat> so we, we really can't find, you know, we, we, we really can't find where once you reach a certain point in, in antler size and configuration, we, we really can't see that it conveys an advantage to the buck. So let me give you an example. You can have a very, very competitive buck. He's five and a half years old. Uh, He's 16 inches inside, and he's an eight-pointer, and he scores 135. That can be an absolute stud in terms of him being able to fight other bucks. So just because he squares up with a buck that has 10 points and is 150 class or 160 class, it it doesn't in any way mean that that 160 class is going to be a better fighter So when you lock those antlers together, again, it is a tool for that buck to demonstrate his power and and his leverage. So because the the fights are one, it's a shoving match, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's not that they just clash and clash. I mean, it's locking up, and then who can basically back the other one up and back him up to the point to where he runs off. Um, And and so that's typically what we see. And so. What is the average mature buck? What's the average antler size and the average configuration of a buck in the state of Mississippi? The average configuration is the eight-pointer, 50%. 50% of the mature bucks are going to have an eight, eight points. And then you only get on down to like 20% or 15%, you know, have 10 or more points. So the way I look at this over Mother Nature's time if if really big, you know, ten and twelve point antlers were really important for breeding success and for dominance, we, we would see Mother Nature taking us that direction. But but really, from a deer's perspective, a buck's perspective, um, what what is adequate is typically an average set of antlers.
3: So here's my question then: So if okay. if we understand that antlers are a signal and a weapon that results in either a buck avoiding more fights, because bucks just won't fight him, or he wins those fights because he's able to get through that ordeal. How does that get passed down then to you know sexual selection, and who how many times he's able to pass the genetics down? Is it that those antlers are the signal to a female, too, or is it that simply by winning the fight, he has access to the female? Or how does that result in him passing the genetics more, I guess is my question
2: okay two th- two things so uh the short answer is yes but by him breeding by him breeding now um so he's going to be passing on his his genetics there now remember that is going to be blended so even though pop is an eight pointer uh his genes when when matched with with the doe's genes he may produce a six pointer as as offspring he may produce a 170 class you know as offspring so there's that blending and that randomness that goes on there with that blending that, that that you never know for sure. Yeah, but but the mechanism by which you talked about for sexual selection, yes, that is that is him breeding. Now you brought up another very very interesting point, and one, <laughs> another project we just completed. We have schemed about this for years. Um, we wanted to look at that very choice, Mark. I believe you mentioned about does does the doe, does she have any say in the matter? Are antlers important to her? Well, we know in birds and and things like like that, it's really critically important. You know, the the peacock's tail, for example, one of the best examples, is that males really have to show off. So the female is picking. You know, she's going to pick which male she wants, and he's usually going to be the brightest and the biggest, or, you know, he builds the best nest or whatever um but so does something like that occur in deer and we think gosh you know it's got to be important to some degree because um when we look at this as biologists we look at who's got all the risk involved here well the doe has a lot of risk involved because the buck when he completes his breeding he's out of the picture he does not help with parental care he does not stay around and fend for that doe you know a few days later much less a few months later so This doe is really, this is an important decision for her, the quality of her offspring. So what we decided to do was to test if female choice can be playing a role in this. And so we designed a study. We met with an engineer uh, on campus here. We thought we need some way that we can manipulate antlers. And we manipulated this really Big set, about a 150, 160 uh, inch set of antlers, and then a really dinky set that score about 90. And we took equivalent aged and equivalent body sized uh, bucks and had them in two pins. So again, let me emphasize: we're controlling for age; they're the same age. We're controlling for body size. We're not comparing 125 pound buck to a 225 pound buck. Same age, same body size and then we put an estrus doe in between them so we have three pins. on the left pin is one buck with small antlers on the extreme right hand side is the same age buck with big antlers and then we have an estrus doe in between and most of the time the estrus doe would move over now when we put her in here she is in estrus she is in standing heat what we call it she is ready to breed and And most of the time, like sixty to seventy percent of the time, she will hang out or sidle up to the buck with the largest antlers. Wow, so there is definitely something going on with her as well. You know she is definitely using that as a cue, and how is that manifested that that's That's where we're still scratching our head. How is that manifested? So what I mean by that is, hey, it really doesn't matter what the doe wants. If hey here's the dominant buck and he's chased everybody off, you know he's gonna he's gonna do the breeding. Um, that brought us back to maybe this multiple paternity stuff. When you know meaning that um, a tw- uh, a doe can breed multiple males. Remember I said twenty five percent of twins have different fathers.
3: Yeah, elaborate so on maybe that.
2: Uh, okay. So. Uh, what we found in another study, and again, this is free-ranging deer, not in our pens, but so this was right, that the advent of being able to do some genetic sampling pretty cost-effectively. And so we had our study population, and we were looking at um, fawns. Well, we're, we're taking genetic samples from everything, everything in the herd, capturing does, capturing fawns, capturing bucks. And, and what we found out is that um, 25% of twin litters had different fathers. So oh. 25% of the time when you see a doe that has twins in, in, now in Mississippi, um, that, that those twins had different fathers. And so it might be with this female choice thing, she might breed, she might come in to eat, um, with with that buck that is available, you know, that dominant buck that's available, but she may also allow the breeding, breeding a buck that maybe she prefers you know, exercising her female choice. So we're about to submit a paper on that, and we'll see what the scientific, commu- scientific community thinks about it, but, but that's our current thinking at this point. Certainly female choice is a part of it. Not as important as, as antlers being a weapon for a male, but, but they may also serve as a signal of quality to the female as well.
3: So That's nuts. So, okay, so what you just said there is that a doe could be pregnant with twins by two separate bucks. So that then brings me to the question of how many – I I don't know why I thought this, um, but you just kind of always assume that a doe comes into heat, she's bred once or whatever, and then she's done. But how many times can a doe get bred or attempted to be bred, I guess? I mean, will that just happen throughout as many times as she gets caught and then just the one fertilization happens? Or I don't know this. Maybe this is an ignorant question. But how many times will that actually happen? Because it sounds like at least twice. Uh, well,
2: <laughs> 25% of the time it happens at least <laughs> twice. Um, well, no, th- th- that's a good question, and I don't really have an answer for you. Um, you know, so when when a doe, again, we we call it standing heat. So for, you know, about – it can be six hours, sometimes eight hours, maybe a little bit longer. But that's when we think she is receptive. And so we've all seen where a doe is not quite in standing heat. She's running through the woods, and the buck is chasing her as part of the normal courtship. Um, But then she reaches a point physiologically, you know, the hormones are right, and she is ready to stand. Now, in your typical situation, you have had this one particular buck, uh, whether he's the big dominant buck or, heck, he was just the lucky one that was available in the area when she's in standing heat, but he will continue to court her and breed her, usually multiple times. You know, he's, he's going to copulate multiple times. Um, now, what we don't know with the multiple breeding with, with different sires, um, maybe another buck enters the picture. So maybe the old mature buck, uh, maybe he's meandering along and, and he detects, oh, you know, hey, there's a doe in estrus, and maybe he comes up and runs off the other buck. And then he mounts her and breeds her as well. Um, maybe that buck uh, that that is breeding her, maybe after he's copulated a few times, maybe he gets the scent. Oh, hey, there's you know there's another doe in estrus, and I'm going to start getting on the trail to find her. Don't don't really know. That's an excellent question. We we really don't know. But obviously there's got to be some situations where you know where where multiple bucks are, are breeding the same doe.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So here's the next natural question then. One second. One second. One second. I'm going to forget what I was going to ask, but what you got?
4: (laughs) Make sure you write it down.
3: I'm going to try right now. (laughs)
4: Okay. So does, does aggression have anything to play in, in the breeding? You know, there, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the tree stand and I've seen some pretty big antlered bucks and I've seen some big antlered bucks that will come into rattling. And I've seen some, you know, big antler bucks that you know, if you rattle, they're gone, right? Or you know, they they shy away from the fight. And at the same time, I've seen three year olds, 120 inches, eight pointer, like you've mentioned, kick everybody's ass because he he was the most aggressive. He came into rattles, he came in, you know, he he was chasing the big mature bucks off because he was basically a badass. So, how much does I guess, personality play into, like, the the natural selection uh, during breeding?
2: Yeah, it it plays a big role. It it plays a really big role. So we see disparities like that a lot in our our research facility, where you would look at this particular buck and you think, man, he's got to be the stud. Look at his body size, his antlers. I mean, he's got to be the guy. But for whatever reason, I guess he's a lover, not a fighter type thing. Then there will be this. He might be a little bit younger. He might be 15 pounds less. But he is that kind of guy that is always looking for a fight, always snorting, always aggressive, even to us humans. You know, we're bringing him food. And every chance he can get, he's going to lay his ears back and ram up against the fence and try to get at us. And, yeah, so speaking to your point, there is absolutely – um, something to aggression and how does that evolve over time um, you know um, it must balance out and and something I think about is I wonder if on the average maybe these more aggressive bucks they may not live as long The the more you engage in fights the more risk you take and sooner or later risk will catch up with you So maybe you have these two different strategies that are successful for different bucks during different times of the year, different times of their life. Maybe the more docile guy, maybe he's just going to sit back and say, I'm not going to risk my life. I'm going to wait for the opportune time, and it's always worked for me in the past, and I'll find a doe in heat, and I'll pursue her and, and spread my genes that way. And then you got that other guy just we all know that guy, don't we, at the bar? The guy looking for the fight. And, Dan Johnson. You know, maybe he's that guy. Maybe he's that yeah, guy. guy. Yeah.
4: Fifteen years ago.
2: Um Dan, did that did that answer your question? I, probably not the best answer, but it's the best I could come up with. That's no, that's no, what that I've always excellent. thought anyway.
3: Okay. That was excellent. So kind of continuing on that uh, thread. Can you elaborate on the typical distribution of breeding success across age groups? Because I think I've read some stuff on this in the past. I think a lot of us assume that the big stud, the big old stud, breeds all the does. But I think I read somewhere that's not necessarily the case. Is that true?
2: That 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 is indeed the case. Um, the 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 one factor that affects the distribution of breeding is age structure. So let, let me give you some contrasting populations. Um, one of our studies, uh, one of our colleagues, was conducted uh, on the King Ranch in South Texas. So lightly, very, very lightly hunted herd. Uh, you can easily have half or more of the bucks within the population are mature. So heavily skewed for these very, very long-lived mature bucks. Now in those situations, most of the breeding will occur by those mature bucks because there are so many of them in the population you know that that one up-and-comer yearling or that one up-and-comer two-year-old he just cannot compete with a mature buck so anytime there's a contest whether a doe is in the presence or not he's going to lose when we contrasted that the the reproductive success of mature bucks there and we compared it to uh, a public land refuge Uh, National Wildlife Refuge here in Mississippi, where the age structure is much younger. So in this population, an old buck was three years of age, okay? So heavy hunting pressure, uh, first legal bucks were usually shot, and so you would see most of your bucks were either yearlings or two-year-olds and occasionally find a three-year-old. Well, then, yeah, all the breeding was spread across from from yearlings and two-year-olds into three-year-olds. So... It is it is the single most factor that affects who's doing the breeding is, is the composition of, of your male age classes.
3: How many, how many does will a buck, I don't know, an average buck or an average mature buck, how many does will a buck impregnate in a given fall? Do you know that? Is that something that's been checked in free range?
2: I, I don't think that has ever been adequately... It'd just be so, so, you, you would have to get a genetic sample of just about every deer in, you know, a 10-square-mile area to find that out. But uh, I'm just going to pull one out of my back pocket here. I would say um, you could probably say uh, 10 to 20. Wow.
4: Well, one buck, uh, and that's your that's your best scientific guess, would, would breed 10 to 20 does?
2: Well, if you – so if we were talking about um, as many possible. Right. So let's say he had no competition. Okay. You know, it's just I've got this population of does, and over a two-week, three-week, one month, depending on um, the distribution of your your conception dates. um, But he's spending one or two days with the doe, tending her, breeding her. And then she's out of heat, and then, hey, I'm going to locate another doe, spend a day with two with her, tend her, breed her. Um, so, essentially, you're saying every, every two days or so, um, he, would, he would breed a doe throughout the, the rut, throughout the breeding season. Gotcha. So, again, Excellent. wild guess there, wild scientific guess there, but that, that would be a maximum, I would think. And then the more bucks that you put into that population, uh, the fewer and fewer opportunities that buck's gonna have. Right? The more competition you have, the less he's gonna breed.
3: Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, Dan, you've got a wild yes. list of questions. Do you wanna? Do you wanna take us in a new direction? Yes, I do. All right. I mean, I got this this entire list of things
4: that. Um, I have on this paper, like Mark said, the first question, everybody talks about mature. You know, what is a mature buck from a bio, from a bio, um from a biology stamp? When does a buck reach full maturity?
2: Okay. It, um, <clears throat> the, the short answer is five. Okay. Five or six would be the short answer. Now, what, what we see is depending on where you're at and the environment, the stability of the environment and the food availability, some bucks get there a little bit quicker. So for example, in Mississippi, when I was talking about that ag region earlier, our Delta region, um, when a buck is at four or five, they are pretty much at 100%. I mean, from four to five, they may add a few more pounds and a few more inches but they've gotten there pretty quick. And, and, and sure, they can still get a little bit bigger. They can turn into, you know, a big old six- or seven-year-old. Uh, but we usually don't see a lot of gains in antler at that time. Now, in our southern part of the state, the environment is not as stable. Uh, food is much more limited. We usually think they're a year behind. And, and when you plot their growth curves from, from harvest data, when you plot them, you'll see that really, really clearly is that you'll see those ag region bucks, it'll be a curve. They'll, they'll grow like crazy until three years of age, and then a little bit more at four, and then hardly any more at five. Whereas deer in our southern part of the state, food limited, you will basically see a linear line, one to two, two to three, three to four. They incrementally, bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so they, the, the clock's a little bit slower, because resources are a little bit less. So more biologically i guess dan is all skeletal growth pretty much stops and by skeletal growth we mean the long bones the scapula you know that body size is usually fixed by about three and a half or at the most four and a half and then they're just adding body weight after that gotcha. so it, it depends as, as as you said earlier it depends on how you define it so if you wanted to say when does body mass level out or when does antler growth level out, you'd probably be safe to say five to six.
3: Okay. Interesting. Gotcha. Is there anything else? We've we've talked a lot about, um, you know, antler growth and breeding success and things like that. Is there anything related to just the general biology of whitetails or things that you've seen when it comes to that that we're getting wrong on average, as far as hunters, like things we believe, um, you know, how we think deer react to things or how we think deer see us or smell us or anything like that, is there any like common misconceptions out there that through your research you've proved to be not true?
2: You know, I'll be honest with you, probably what I hope, anyway, is, is the most impactful part of our research is um, it's probably the, the antler genetic stuff. I mean, I, I think we have proven that so many ways that um, how to harvest, developing an appropriate harvest strategy for your bucks, um, the, the purpose of harvesting a particular buck, and, and the mistake that we always see. Um, oh, my gosh, it's, uh, heck, eight out of every or nine out of every ten clubs when, when, when they come to us and say, man, we just can't get over the top. We've been doing everything, we've been practicing management, we've food plots, we've we've kept our deer herd under control, we've got our doe harvest, you know, on and on and on. And the problem that we see, or or excuse me, the problem that they always have is they'll say, and and I'm going to use a Boone and Crockett score relative to my area. So in my area here in Mississippi, you say, we get bucks up to, you know, four or five years of age and we can't get them over 130 inches. We, we just cannot break through this 130. What, why, why aren't we killing 150-class deer, 160-class deer? And we work with them, and we go back and ask the type of bucks that, we're harvesting, that they are harvesting, and we look at their harvest data. And the biggest problem where people shoot themselves in the foot more often than not is they shoot the wrong bucks when they're middle-aged. So, for example... When you see um, this 130 class deer, oh my God! You know, hey, you know, and hey, it's bow season, right? It's archery. Uh, I got a new bow in my hands, and at 30 yards away, there's this 130 class deer. Now, if a three year old deer that scores 130 is probably going to be a 160. Uh, <clears throat> a three year old 120 class is probably going to grow at maturity to be a 150 class etc. And so what we see over time is that exceptional bucks are harvested when they're three years of age. And that's why they can never break through to shooting 150 and 160 class. So it is the very opposite. Remember earlier we were talking about when you see these older bucks that are obviously not going to be the trophy not going to be the buck you're really managing for and hoping for, you know, go ahead and harvest it. You know, that, that's good source of deer meat for you, and it'll, it'll save a lot of forage for other deer. These people are doing just the opposite. So they're seeing that 130, 135-inch 3-year-old and harvesting it, and they just um, eliminated the possibility of them shooting a 150 or a 160 two years later.
3: Right. Taking the up-and-comer and and out.
2: You took the up-and-comer out, and, and, and you got to keep this in mind. 160 and 170 class bucks are anomalies. They're rare, very, very rare. And so you saw that rare buck when it was three years of age, and you harvested it two years early. We, we have some really uh, good hunting clubs along the Mississippi River, very, very uh, intense ag region, very fertile soil, et cetera. And, and you're seeing some of these people, some of these hunters, killing uh, two-year-olds that are scoring, you know, in the one-teens and one-twenties. And, and those are bucks that would have been, that would have grown into be if they'd followed your normal growth curve. They would have ended up being Boone and Crockett. Yeah. Wow. But but they were harvested too early. So the, the composition of your buck harvest is is so critical. And what, what I tell hunters in my workshops is the single most valuable asset you have on your property are high quality young bucks you got to do everything you possibly can to protect those high quality young bucks and so i know a lot of your listeners do do this we do, we do it as well is your preseason camera survey you know if you're part of a hunting club especially where you have a collection of people is w- saturate the woods with those cameras and we identify the up and comers and say hands off Do not harvest this buck whatsoever. And then by default, you might have this other three- or four-year-old that's below average and say, you you know, you can harvest this one, but this is a buck we're protecting. And when you see clubs year after year systematically do that, then that's when they start reaching their potential. And that's when they start harvesting those um, really, really high-quality 150, 160 and above.
3: Interesting. Makes sense. It comes down to those. That's the single
2: biggest thing I see.
3: Yeah, those levers we can push as a hunter. You you well as a manager or a hunter, you can push the food lever. You can increase nutrition, but probably that that very most, like you said, that most important lever is the the trigger. Whether you choose to pull the trigger or not pull the trigger, is is the ultimate the ultimate uh, decision that will lead to results down the road. Now, I, I want to jump to something else really quick, if you don't mind. I sure. imagine I imagine down in the part of the country we're at in the, in the southern part of the country. Another limiting factor, because of its impacts on nutrition, I assume and from what I understand, one of those limiting factors might be competition from hogs. And that's something we've never talked about on the podcast before, but I know a lot of people deal with. And as I understand it, you've done some research. or looking into that. Can you tell us about what you're doing on that front?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um <laughs> Maybe a little more than you want to know here, but when I took this job in two thousand and six i you know i'm, I'm a 'm I'm a deer biologist for crying out loud i 'm just my my whole program was going to be focused on deer and helping people and and working with food plots and forest management I mean a whole program and then I started getting phone calls first week on the job um, man i 've got hogs on my property. What can I do about these hogs and And It was like, oh my god, you know i li- had lived in Mississippi for a decade and knew we had a lot of hogs, but I wasn't in a position to where I was interacting with the hunting public and with landowners to how big of an issue it was. So we started developing educational programs, workshops and seminars, and and over the years I've just met with thousands of people, landowners, that um, are struggling. I mean, that absolutely hate hogs from from a hunting club standpoint, from destruction of roads, from destruction of food plots, uh, from competition. I mean, this this is anecdotal, I I will admit this is anecdotal, but there's enough smoke, I'm beginning to believe there's fire, is so many hunters that I trust say, once we started getting so many hogs on our property, we just don't see near as many deer anymore. And um, probably due to food competition. And so you guys know this, Uh, you don't have to be a biologist. If there is a limited resource on your property, So let's use that white oak, or that that grove of of white oaks. And the white oaks are dropping, and it's that place where you can always go see deer. And now you've got a sounder of hogs competing with deer for those white oaks, who's going to win?
3: I guess the hogs, hogs is that true?
2: They're always going to win. A deer is never going to outcompete a hog, a hog is always going to win. And so we start seeing all these most valuable resources going into a hog's belly rather than into a deer's belly. Um, We're even starting to see with uh, more more kind of real scientific trail camera surveys with these types of uh, statistical modeling you can do with that, that in places where you get more photographs of hogs, you get less photographs of deer. I mean, statistically that has been proven in a lot of areas. In places where you see a lot of deer, you're not seeing a lot of hogs. So when hogs and deer are on the, in the same space, on the same property or landscape, you know hogs are having an, an impact on, on your deer. Now, that's just the hunters. Now, the farmers, I mean, we were on a property, uh, part of my study area earlier this year. Um, I don't know if you all have ever seen um, hog rooting in a cornfield. And most people, when I show them a picture or a slide, they – when I say, hey, hey, t- take a look at this field. Can you tell that it's been completely 100% destroyed by a hog? And they'll say, well, what do you mean? I don't, I don't see a single stalk of corn. Like, that's exactly right because the night, the very night, the farmer put that seed in the ground, a hog or hogs went up and down every single row – in a 20-acre, 30-acre, 40-acre, 80-acre field and rooted up every seed of corn. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's precision. You know, we've got precision ag. It's precision rooting. They, they will literally, every single row where that, where that planter has cut the ground and put that corn seed, they will root there and, and just destroy the whole crop, you know, in one night. So they are uh, a nightmare. They're a nightmare. I've, <clears throat> I've, I've never met... Um, And here's a story I get a lot. I'll be doing a a seminar, a workshop, and you'll see the the guy or gal or couple will come up and I go, golly, I I wish we had been at this seminar five years ago because, you know, we thought it was going to be kind of cool. We thought that when hogs came onto our property and and during deer season we'd shoot a couple of them and, hey, we thought, you know, during the off season we'd have some fun on our property uh, shooting some more hogs. And then Fast forward five years, and they can't get a food plot out of the ground. I say, man, I, I wish we had gotten on top of this a lot earlier. So just make no mistake. This is, this is a species you can't play with. Um, you're literally, literally, you're playing with fire in terms of their effects. They just cause so much destruction. And sure, they are fun to hunt. There's no doubt about it. The hogs are fun to hunt. Uh, and they taste good. But, but I've never worked with a property that was interested in ducks, deer, or turkey, and them ever say to me, I'm so glad we have hogs on our property. (laughs) Never not once. Hmm. Every one of them now is literally spending thousands and thousands of dollars every single year to try to get rid of them. So um, they're they're just completely uh, bad news and, and a bad idea. So what's the solution? Right now... The best thing you can do is um, what we call strategic trapping. And, and you, can be, you can you can make a lot of progress um, with, with the right kind of trapping. And it's not just going out and putting up what we call a little cage trap, like a little box trap where you might catch one or two hogs. You have to use a trap that we call a corral trap. And if you go to our website, wildpiginfo.com, dot com, uh, you'll see an example of this. And so these are big uh, corral traps. Why do we call it a corral trap? Because you're building a corral. You're building a corral anywhere from 20 to 40 feet across, and you have a big door on it. And what you do is you pre-bait these hogs. You get them um, addicted, so to speak, to coming into your trap to eat your bait. Most often that's corn. And You can be really, really sophisticated. You know, we use the electronic trap doors. So every time an animal goes into that trap, it trips a sensor. And we can look on our smartphone and, yep, all right, all the pigs are in the trap. There's 14 of them. Or, hey, all 19, you know, pigs are in the trap, drop the door. And a cell signal is sent to the trap and it drops the door. And so you can be super, super efficient, you know, trapping uh, pigs when you're catching them 10 to 20 at a time. So right now, that is the most efficient way. Some people love uh, night shooting, and that can certainly play a role, you know, with the night vision gear and all that. Um, but, but you're u- usually not going to be near as efficient. You know, shooting single animals at a time, um, you're never going to be as efficient as when you're using a trapping, uh, a good trapping program. And then also, guys, depending on where you're at in the country, you know, it's very popular in Texas and we do some of this in Mississippi, if you have the landscape for it is aerial gunning. And so uh, through our US Department of Agriculture, our wildlife services, uh, landowners can get a contract with USDA and they'll bring the helicopter over and they will aerial gun the property, you know, to try to kill as as many hogs as they can. So the amount of money, when you think about your tax dollars, that is your tax dollars. They're paying for a helicopter and aerial gunning. Um, so we're just seeing populations explode, and now we're having to spend our tax dollars to control them. And so I, I just would not encourage any of your listeners. Uh, you don't want hogs on your property. If you see a hog, start a trapping program and get rid of them as soon as possible. And, and again, we've got all the resources you need on wildpiginfo.com
3: it's a it's a it's an issue in a situation that's just very foreign to me because I've never hunted um or even lived anywhere where hogs have been an issue so it's you know the idea of some of these things sounds like whoa you know to me just in my own personal life but I, I I totally understand that it's a huge issue in parts of the country and I think you know at least when I think about it, I think about you know some animals, you know, let's like predators in different parts of the country. At least from my perspective, right? There's a there's a oh there's a time and a place and a need to manage those to maintain balance in the population. Um, and I think that they, at least from my perspective, there's a place for predators on the landscape is is a, a natural part of that ecosystem. Um, but I think when it comes to hogs, right? That's an introduced species, is an invasive species. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but hogs in the form that they are now were not supposed to be down there where they're at now, and because of that, they're they're really screwing up the balance. Um, and in those cases, it seems like you know extreme action is necessary, right?
2: You you are precisely right. Yeah, you are precisely right. Now, if we were in Germany we would be approaching this problem completely different as they are uh, in Germany and in Europe and Russia it's the game species you know it's from that area that's 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 where that animal is supposed to be but it's not in North America and so it can outcompete a lot of our game species and um, you know we, for, for example we do diet studies too we look at what they eat and it, I guess you have to see it for it really to sink in but anything that lives on the ground a hog is going to consume just think about that anything that a pig any type of animal that resides on the ground and if a pig can get its mouth on it and eat it it's going to so when we open them up we see we see uh eggs we see reptile eggs we see frogs we see salamanders we see snakes we found an armadillo for crying out loud um We've, you know, fawns. I mean, what's it going to do? You know, if if you've got a hen turkey nesting and a hog or a sounder of hogs come up, I mean, absolutely it's going to consume those eggs. There's no reason to think it wouldn't. So um, when you, and if you just have one or two hogs across your property, it's not going to be that big of an impact. But, But the danger is thinking, hey, I just got a couple hogs because five years later, instead of having a couple hogs, you might have 30 hogs or 50 hogs. And then you start noticing, like some of these other hunting clubs, man, our deer quality. We don't have, we do not see many deer anymore. Uh and, you know, they just start out-competing our, our native wildlife. And so they just are, again, you know, don't take my word for it. Take every single uh, hunting club or landowner I've ever met um, that were interested. Again, they are interested in, in hunting in terms of uh, primarily deer but also turkey and ducks they have never said i'm so glad we have hogs on our property they always say it usually with a uh, you know disgust on their face just sickness on their face because they have to devote so much time and money for their control
3: it it definitely sounds like something uh that's not a fun thing to deal with i'm i'm glad that um selfishly it hasn't hasn't become an issue up in my neck of the woods and i hope it doesn't but you keep you hear about these occasional you know bursts of it in some random areas sometimes you know it's it's something that you got to be wary of in a you know keep your eyes open to it seems like
2: and and you've got them all around you i mean they're 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 creeping your way now here's the fact of the matter how are those how are those wild hogs getting to you mark how do you think? Uh,
3: well, everything I've heard of it's been escaping from cap from captivity. So people that have a a game farm or a fenced in hunting area around them, and and something getting out is that that's what's exactly usually happening?
2: right. Yep, yep, that is exactly right. They're either either escaping from a captive facility or people just literally hauling them and turning them loose. Yikes! So that that yeah. So right now, with within the pig management community, our our biggest issues are trying to catch people in the act of transportation. And so, yeah, we, we urge anybody, if you ever see something suspicious, what in the world are you doing with, um, it looks like a bunch of wild pigs or wild hogs in the back of somebody's trailer, called, call a conservation officer or game warden. Let them know. Let them check these people out because that's how it happens. Uh, you, you open a trailer door on a wildlife refuge, and, and the next thing you know, five years down the road, you got, a pig problem so we got to address the the issue um the the reason for their expansion you know that they expand on their own locally like any wildlife population does they grow and reproduce and expand but you know all of a sudden uh, a hog population showing up in manitoba or showing up in michigan or ohio or indiana that's from people moving them around
1: Hmm.
3: yeah definitely got to keep an eye out for that kind of thing you don't need there's enough issues and challenges and things popping up naturally not to you don't want to deal with anything new added to the to the festival that's for sure that's right so bronson we are we are coming up on time here um but i'm curious do you have any i don't know pet issue or passion project or part of your research that we haven't talked about that you really want to make sure we do touch on here in our kind of our final final thoughts
2: uh i sure do um i would just urge people if if they're more interested in the kind of stuff we do the research we do um our website it's msudeerlab.com, com. go there and check us out uh see what we do and one thing I'm really excited about, Mark, is we are jumping into the podcast world ourselves. Nice. And so, yeah, we recorded our first one last week. I'm not a pro like you, so I've, <laughs> I've got a steep learning curve. Um, but it's going to be the title of it is Deer University, or we're going to call Deer University or Dear U for short. And we'll have all the episodes on our on our website, the MSU Deer Lab website. But it's it's going to be all about deer management and deer science. And so, what we hope to do with with every episode is um, attack something that is would be of interest to both hunters and to wildlife managers. So, uh, what's the hot topic with disease? So we'll spend an issue talking about the you know the physiology of a VHD or blue tongue or chronic wasting disease. We'll talk about antlers, the physiology of antlers and, and what can you do. Uh, we'll talk about habitat management, food plot management, but, but just uh, topics like that based on research that, that we've conducted. And we hope to, have, um, hope to have that up and running in a month or two. So uh, if your listeners don't mind, just check to our website and um, download it and give it a listen when we get it up and running. That's
3: awesome. Well, selfishly, I I hope I can get you back on this podcast to talk about some of these issues some more too, because I feel like there's so many things we haven't got to talk about. Like we haven't got to talk much about habitat or food plots, or um, gosh, I'm sure there's a disease is another topic that I'd be interested. So we we might need to have a part two, Bronson, if you're up for it at some point here soon.
2: Just just give me a date if I'm available. We'll do it. Be happy to.
3: Awesome. Well, uh, I'm excited to check out the podcast that you guys are working on when that comes out. And uh, I'll be sure to continue following everything on the website, too. I, I've seen, you know, you guys are always sending out different things that are featured in magazines or different places. It seems like you're doing some really, really interesting and, and helpful work. So, so thank you, Bronson, for the good work you're doing, and, and thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It, it was an honor.
3: Yeah, this is a lot of fun, and Dan had to drop off, uh, as he occasionally has to do, to attend to family things, but uh, I know he had, a, he had a good time, too. So thanks, Bronson.
2: Yeah, yeah, anytime. Thanks so much.
3: And that, ladies and gentlemen, is this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. I found it uh, just fascinating, and I, and I think... Based on how much I enjoyed this, I think we're going to have to have Bronson on again, like I said a couple seconds ago, and, and maybe some new biologists, some other faces in this world too, because there's just so, there's so much going on here at a deeper level when it comes to what deer do, why they do it, how they do it, that uh, I think as deer hunters is, is just endlessly fascinating. So we're going to keep on digging into it, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy that too. So before we wrap it up, I do want to thank our partners who have helped keep this podcast going. I want to give a big thank you to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Redneck Blinds, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. And, of course, thank you for listening. And thank you for staying Wired
0: to Hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.